0: Hey, everybody, welcome to SP or Sex and Politics, my occasional bonus podcast for Savage Lovecast Magnum subs. These are extended chats with interesting guests about things that aren't necessarily sex or sex and relationship advice related, but we always get our SP guests on to sex at the end of these conversations. My guest, for this installment of S and is Alex Steffen. He describes himself as a futurist. That's literally on his business card. Alex writes and talks about climate change and other issues impacting the future of life on this planet at his newsletter, The Snap Forward. His goal, he says, is to be a good ancestor. That's something we should all be striving to do. Alex and I talk coal, air travel, what we can do as individuals, and what we can't. He also takes the sex question with me. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Joining me, Alex Steffen, leading climate futurist and host of the newsletter slash podcast, The Snap Forward. Hey, Alex, it's good to see you again.
1: It's good to see you. It's been a while.
0: It it, it has. Uh, So I'm not sure how I want to open this or how much of my own shit I want to reveal. So before we get to the question I really wanted to ask you, tell me what a climate futurist does besides wring their hands.
1: Sure. Well, my work looks at natural systems and human systems and how they're both changing and how they're both changing each other. And uh, in particular, I call it climate futurism because the kinds of changes that we've set in motion are so large that even though many of them have yet to happen, they're already changing our lives. They're already changing the worlds that we live in and how we have to deal with things. So we can't really understand what's going on now unless we're understanding what's on the way.
0: How do we talk about climate change, weather weirding, all these things that are going on without just inducing panic and paralysis in people? Because because the issue seems so huge. And it seems like as individuals, there's so little we can do about it that there's this kind of, I don't want to say learned helplessness, but this kind of, it's more like an acknowledged helplessness. Like, what can I do? I can't do much. Maybe I can do something to get AR-15s out of the hands of 18-year-olds. But what can I do about fossil fuels?
1: I mean, I think, you know, the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that for most of the people on the planet, there are severe limitations to their ability to do anything. But for a lot of the kinds of people who listen to podcasts and, you know, read magazines and so forth, we have skills and expertise and so forth that we can bring to bear on the problem wherever we are in society. And so the first thing is asking just, you know, are we doing our 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 individual actions, especially the ones that we do where it's our job to do it, you know, in the workplace or in our community? Are we, are we pushing for real change? The second big thing I think is acknowledging that all of us live in a world that's different in concrete, demonstrable scientific ways than the world we grew up in. You know, that's true even for like teenagers now. Mm -hmm. And Part of the reality of that is, you know, we sort of left behind one world and we've come into another world and we're in a discontinuity, right? Things are not the same as they were. And that discontinuity affects each of us, right? It's something we're all experiencing is sort of a personal discontinuity. Because if the world out there is not as we thought it was, then our lives are not as we thought we were leading them, right? I mean, our lives have changed. And there's an enormous amount of grief and anger and frustration and despair and cynicism that have bubbled up from that, that have boiled up from the realization, hey, my life got changed on me, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the things that we need to do is open up space for people to have their reaction to that and then begin to move forward to being at home in the world that we actually now live in, right? To begin to change our worldview and understand better.
0: Are people really seeing much change in their everyday average lives? Like, we look at the news and we read about wildfire seasons starting earlier and earlier about the mega drought in the American West. But when I go to the grocery store, the strawberries are still there. You, You know, my house isn't on fire. And there's this sense of, you know, maybe if you just don't watch the news, you won't feel so scared because... Many of us aren't seeing an impact in our daily lives, or maybe we see an impact like the skies here in Seattle were blood red for a month, a couple of years ago, because British Columbia burnt to the ground, all of the forests, but skies are blue today, and it's easy to just go about your daily life.
1: Yeah, well, so you know, there's two parts of that. One is the whistling past the graveyard part, right? Where we're seeing things that we just don't want to acknowledge it because that would suck. But, you know, also there's the other part of that, which is that our baselines shift, as they say, right? We Mm -hmm. get used to things that we used to find alarming, you know? So probably most everyone, you know, with a, with a, basic education understands at this point that we are melting the ice caps, right? They've heard that somewhere. Now, if I went back to somebody in 1900 and I was like, aliens are melting the ice caps, they'd say, you know, by gum, we must mount a firm defense and save the planet. And we're just like, yeah, you know, the ice caps melt. Penguins, I like penguins, that's going to suck. You know, we just get used to it. Mm -hmm. And one of the real dangers here is getting used to things without processing what they mean to us. And I think that there's an enormous amount of of bottled up emotion in the world about what's happening right now, because, you know, let's face it, we all have friends and family we can't discuss this stuff with, you know, depending on our political point of view, we may acknowledge it and still not have any way of politically incorporating it into how we see the world. You know, we're all to some degree, you know, alone and frightened in this, or we have kids and we're frightened for them, or, you know, whatever. There's just a huge emotional barrier to acknowledging what's actually already happening and how unready for it we are. And what is actually already happening? Well, the basic thing that's happening is we have altered the function of every ecosystem on Earth and of the entire climate system such that temperatures are changing, storms are increasing, uh, rainfall is shifting. Species are going extinct. Species are are moving to new places. Uh, It's undermining human systems on everything from farming to you know sea level rise is is undermining uh, coastal cities. Uh, You know it's this vast change in every part of human civilization that touches the natural world, which is pretty much every part of human civilization.
0: And one of the points I I follow you on Twitter, and I I learn a lot following on Twitter. I read your stuff one of the sort of red flags you're raising or the warnings you're constantly giving is systems are adaptable until they're not. And it's not just about tipping points. It's about losing our, you know, getting to a point where there are no other moves we can make, no adjustments we can make. And our systems are brittle. And humanity will be facing things that, you know, we think of as kind of biblical myths around mass starvation. And and, and this is the stuff where you just start to think about it and you're like, ah, I'm going to go watch Heartstopper again on Netflix because that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. And this makes me feel afraid. But it's also one of the rare things that makes me feel glad that I'm 57.
1: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, one of the things that's difficult about this moment is we're used to imagining sort of a binary future, right? Good or bad. Like, so either we get our act together and all humanity, you know, rises up and solves this problem, and we, along the way, solve all sorts of other problems of poverty and injustice and, and, you know, oppression, or it's the apocalypse and just everything's done and we're going to, like, be hunting for grubs in fallen, burnt logs, you know? Like, those are kind of our mental extremes, and neither of them is on the table anymore. Right? We're in this whole different world. I call, I call that world a trans-apocalyptic world because the problem is there are some people right now who are hunting for grubs in the trunks of burnt-fallen trees. Like There are people who are living in the worst kinds of conditions we can imagine, and there are people who are taking space flights for tourism. And that, mm. that dichotomy of some places doing okay, some people doing okay, and others already being in our worst-case scenario
0: we're seeing, what, 130-degree temperatures for weeks at a time in Pakistan right exactly. now? Exactly. I mean, a
1: huge swath of the earth is becoming literally unlivable, right? Literally, you know, hostile to the functioning of the human body. Um, the seas are rising, et cetera, et cetera. We're looking at grain shortages, not just because of the war in Ukraine, a war that is connected to Putin and to his fossil fuel ambitions, and thus connected again to climate change and everything else but also because we're seeing really bad harvests around the world as temperature shifts and rainfall shifts. And, you know, so we're seeing bad harvests in China, some in Africa, some here. And so connected directly to climate change and ecological collapse and, you know, our, our difficulty creating sustainable food systems is like what we're seeing right now, bread rising, you know, riots happening. Uh, the price of bread
0: rising. and A and very real and threat to our national critical Krispy Kreme donut supply. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I bring up Krispy Kreme donuts because how do you get the people who insist that this isn't a problem to care? You would think, you know, sometimes I just want to say, okay, it's a hoax. Yeah, it's, it's a hoax. China is hoaxing us with this climate change shit. But even still, if we get off fossil fuels, we're not, Pouring money into Saudi Arabian murderous dictators' pockets or Putin's pockets anymore, uh, even if it was a hoax, and we shifted to renewables, isn't that better? Even if it was all just a big left-wing conspiracy to create new good jobs in coal country, <laughs>
1: exactly, up exactly to harness mill- new industries. Yeah, there are two parts of this. One part is that we have, especially here in the U.S., you know, faced opposition from what I call the forces of predatory delay.
0: Predatory yeah, that is one of the things I wanted to ask you about to to define predatory delay. So predatory delay is the blocking of needed change in order to, you know,
1: continue to profit from something that's unsustainable or damaging, whose costs you won't pay for. Right. So climate change is a great example. Fossil fuel companies are not going to pay for the cost of like, you know, climate damage. Right. But They are very much benefiting from selling the oil.
0: And the longer they can delay a shift to renewables, the more profit they're going to make. So what they're engaged in right now is gumming up the works, introducing doubt. You know, maybe cigarettes cause cancer, maybe they don't. We don't know. So please don't regulate us right now. And so that they can continue to profit. And the longer they're able to engage in that predatory delay, the more money they're going to make but the worse it's going to be. When it runs out, when people catch on, when Miami is underwater and people think, well, we have to do something about
1: this." Yeah. And we, we face a bunch of bubbles, right, where we are pretending that things are valuable, that we know will be destroyed or can no longer continue or no longer work in the world that we now live in. And um, that is one of the big problems is there are a lot of people who don't want to acknowledge what's happening because they stand to lose money. And a lot of people who know what they're doing is wrong. And are doing it anyway because they can make money, um, you know. So you got that part of things, but you've also just got the reality that that those forces have managed to, especially here in the U.S., have managed to drive the discussion about our relationship to the planet, to science, to climate change, to vaccines, etc., right into the heart of the culture war. Right? Mm-hmm. They've managed to make it one of the real touchstones. Or, you know, conservative reactionary people is to no longer believe in climate change or to believe there's nothing we can do about it or whatever. Right.
0: And so everything's everything's masks. Everything is the science denialism applies to absolutely everything. Climate. Absolutely. Denial of data, observable reality. The fact that slashing taxes for millionaires and billionaires supply side economics doesn't Raise all boats doesn't, you know, if low taxes on millionaires meant everybody benefited, every we wouldn't have the poverty rates that we have. We wouldn't see the flatlining of incomes for people at the bottom three quarters of the country if what they said worked the way they say it works. And that's just not about taxes, supply side economics, but climate, the disease.
1: It's the entire you know, it's it's civic sabotage, really. We're locked. Right? We're
0: locked. We're, locked up, we're trapped on the planet with these people. Yes,
1: and that star- that's one of the big problems that we have is that our entire theory of how we're going to tackle climate change, you know, uh, extinction, toxics, all these big, massive international problems is that we're going to bring everyone to the table and work out a compromise that allows us to move forward fast enough to do these things, and the problem is that the people who don't want things to change figured out all you have to do is create an entrenched opposition and that theory falls apart and that's what we have that's you know australia just finally voted out their equivalent but there are still you know there's still massive problems there and they're they're not you know anywhere near where they need to be and that's true almost everywhere there's a handful of countries you know there's sort of like you know denmark and Finland, and you know, a handful of countries like that, that are, that are almost doing enough. But most of us are in this situation where we, the whole theory of, of our activism, of our advocacy, of raising awareness, of going to protests, etc., is that we will move consensus forward, then act. And that hasn't happened, and it's now not going to happen in time even if it does happen in the future, it's not going to be in time. And so that means all of us are in this weird situation of having to acknowledge that we're going to win despite the opposition, not by incorporating it. You know,
0: this is a lefty thing, though, like we have to bring all stakeholders to the table. You know, Occupy Wall Street fell apart because it was devoted to consensus. Everybody had to agree. And that is, is sort of a lefty, I think, misapprehension about what democracy is. Like, democracy, some people lose. And in our rigged democracy, it's the majority that loses because we have a white minority rule in this country. We are a Rhodesia now. And this idea that we have that if we can just reason with people, bring them to the table, we can get everybody, you know, get Joe Manchin to agree that maybe it would be better if we did shut down these coal plants <laughs>
1: Um, yeah. I, I mean, you sort of feel like there's these groups that are like, I know things are dire, but, you know, you know, we'll fix this. We're working on one last white paper. <laughs> like that'll <sighs> finally put the things over This little bit of science will convince the people who just hate us that they should act, you know, um, and we're not going to do that. So our answer has to be, you know, concentrated disruption and rapid action where it's possible.
0: So Extinction Rebellion, you support what Extinction Rebellion is doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I really, I respect things that are direct attempts to gum up the works of the bad guys, but we also need way more actual building and positive action, right? We should be, you know, building low carbon, walkable, dense communities in every city on earth right now. We should be, you know, just building clean energy everywhere we can get it. You know, we shouldn't, you shouldn't be allowed to buy a car that's not an EV, right? Etc. These things are, I mean, they're doable right now. They've been doable for 20 years. And why are it, we doing them? Because we keep waiting for the consensus to emerge, right? We keep being like, if we can just convince the 20% of the people who regard the facts here as propaganda, that they should acknowledge the facts, then we can all move forward without opposition and conflict. But no. conflict is baked in now to this situation, right? Conflict, there is no way to get what we need without embracing the reality that there are competing interests of people who want to move fast to respond to these problems and people who want to slow down change. And that that's is, really. I would argue that politics of tempo is actually the center of American politics, possibly global politics right now. But that's really. the, that is the all-defining fight that we're in that we can't even see because there's so much nonsense.
0: One of the things that strikes me is so perverse about this moment. Are there the people who stand to profit from this predatory delay uh, and, you know, making these changes to save the planet, save humanity? Or the planet will be fine. The planet will outlive us to save ourselves and the way we've lived on this planet for however many tens of thousands of years our species has existed. There are people who stand to directly financially benefit from that predatory delay. And then there are the people who just culturally have identified this as something that they want to own the libs about. They can't let the libs have been right about this and they will fight it, fight it. You see these people who put coal burning little like things on their pickup trucks and drive around. It's called rolling coal and shooting coal smoke into the air just to say, fuck you. What, what is going on in in their heads that they identify with this culture of destruction, consumption, that, that fossil fuels are like right up there with Jesus and they can't let yeah. them go?
1: I mean, you know, there's lots of interesting thinking and writing about the mindset there. But to my mind, I think the important thing is to acknowledge that it kind of doesn't even matter anymore why people think these things, because they do and they're not giving them up. And so from the point of view of practical action, we have to, have to just understand that if somebody's rolling coal, they're never doing anything other than opposing everything we, we need to do. And that's just a fact. It's an unfortunate fact, but we live in a world where that conflict is baked in. It's now you know, immutable. Uh, and from there, though, to acknowledge the other part of that, which is rarely talked about which is that for the vast majority of people, not just the vast majority of poor people or young people, but the vast majority of every kind of person, there's more to be gained by moving fast than by slowing down. And in fact, in almost every case, delay buys us nothing. It gets us no increased prosperity. It's not good for anybody other than those profiting directly from it. Whereas there's all sorts of things we know how to do to make our society more sustainable, cut emissions, to ruggedize our cities and communities, um, you know, our infrastructure. There's all sorts of actions we know how to do that, in fact, have direct societal benefit for a lot of people.
0: I have some lefty friends who acknowledge the science, acknowledge climate change is real, who aren't telling themselves, well, you know, Holland is nine feet below sea level. So once Miami's nine feet below sea level, who gives a shit? We can just build some dikes." They know that uh, You know, Holland is on solid rock and Miami is on porous rock and the water is going to come up through the ground. We're not going to be able to dike Miami out of the ocean the way they've diked Amsterdam out of the ocean. So I have friends who are all over the science who get it who get it, who are just like, there's going to be effects here. Human ingenuity, the scientific community, geoengineering, there's going to be a dosis machina solution. Something is going to save us at the last minute. And so we don't need to... Do anything else right now? We just need to wait for the science community that's losing its mind trying to get people to act. The science community is going to like pull a rabbit out of the hat. There's no rabbit, is there? No, there's no rabbit. There's no rabbit. Um, There are negative rabbits.
1: The reality is that even if we get extraordinarily lucky with things like carbon capture or maybe, you know, some – right now, no geoengineering proposal is sound, but, you know, should we get incredibly lucky and figure one out? Even if we do those things, they're only going to partly mitigate the crisis we've set in motion, right? Because it's already here. It's already happening. We can't roll back the clock. Most of these changes, the science tells us are irreversible in human timescales. Like there's nothing you can do. You know, the reality is this is our life and this is what we're going to be, you know, dealing with. But, but we keep, portraying the world that we need to build as as sacrifice as something that's going to cost us as something that's going to like reduce quality of life or whatever and that's it's just a lie it's just a lie we know that we can deliver more prosperity uh, if we are doing it in a more sustainable way we know that there are plenty of places that people can find jobs and good investments and you know so forth that the more that we do this the better we get at it and if we were being sensible, we'd understand that the, the the evidence is unequivocal, that we gain, 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 gain by doing this, and we lose by doing anything other than the fastest action we can have. And part of the problem is it demands that we let go of some of our older ideas and expectations, you know, that, that we all are in the situation where the world has changed. And so, you know, we're undergoing this personal discontinuity, right? This sense mm-hmm. of like, if the world isn't what we thought it was, you know, then our lives aren't what we thought they were, and that makes it very hard. Like people don't want to face that reality, and so they don't want to face the the reality that, for example, uh, you know, that they personally would do better. In fact, pretty much every person on the planet would do better if we were to go, you know, into headlong, reckless climate action. Right? that there's no sensible amount that's a compromise between how fast we should go and not right we can't go too fast
0: you know one of the one of the things you mentioned was a de- you know retrofitting or rebuilding our cities to be dense and walkable replacing automobiles with you know gas internal combustion engine gasoline with evs but we can't all have the cars we have now and even if they're all evs and have dense walkable cities because one of the reasons we don't have dense walkable cities is all the goddamn cars everywhere but people who haven't lived in a dense, walkable place, it feels strange and foreign to them to contemplate it. And they think, you know, the single family home in the suburbs and the car and the commute that makes them fucking miserable, that fucking commute, and the streets that aren't safe for their kids to play on because of the cars zooming around is the life that they can't let go of or are afraid to let go of. And that dense, walkable city is some kind of commie plot
1: we we have real attachment to what we've grown to, up thinking is what's like familiar. the right thing to do and like the way that we show that we're being successful and good people and all that and you know one of the real problems that we're facing is that whole model's falling apart and not just for ecological reasons you know it was never sort of even fiscally sustainable to begin with and now the big changes are happening they're starting to happen and that's i think the real danger is people who have not processed what's going on being suddenly confronted with a change in their reality that they have no means of mitigating or negotiating with. And, you know, I talk about how none of us are really ready for what's happened already, much less what's coming.
0: And the accelerated timetable. And the
1: accelerated timetable. Things are going so much more quickly than we're used to thinking.
0: Well, 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 so much more quickly than the scientists making the doomiest predictions, the gloomiest predictions even 20 years ago that, you know, the... Scientists were, you know, here's the worst case scenario, you know, probably won't be this bad. And it's already worse at this point than the worst case scenarios for this point where 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing to note here is that the science has actually been pretty good. The, the challenges have come from, you know, a certain amount of caution that scientists have felt they have to have. And when they're talking with people, but also, you know, a belief uh, that I shared that we just simply wouldn't let things get this bad. Right. You know, sort of when you, you know, when you talked about 20 years ago, when you talked about what was likely to happen, well, people were like, we're going to turn before we, you know, hit the cliff. Right. But we're going right over the cliff. Right. I mean, maybe not a cliff, but we're you know, we are already tumbling and rolling here. Um, And and so there's a certain level here where what we're hearing is a little bit of alarm not a little bit of alarm, crazy panicked alarm that some of the systems that we thought wouldn't be changing for decades or even centuries have already begun those changes. But there's also a lot of alarm at just how little we have done, right? We haven't done nothing, but we've done so much
0: less than we thought we were going to do. Okay, so what what are the systems that are already changing?
1: Well, I mean, the the biggest, most obvious one is what they call the cryosphere, right? The ice world. Like, you know, when you look at the ice caps, when you look at glaciers, or when you look at the tundra, you know, um, what we're seeing is places that have, you know, held huge amounts of ice or have been largely frozen for a very long time are thawing out, melting, etc. Um, you know, there's this uh, climate scientist, Eric Osterberg, who talks about if you want to visualize how much water, how much ice is melting into water on Greenland, imagine 2000 elephants made of ice charging into the ocean every second.
0: I mean, you say stuff like that, and it's like, okay, I, I can visualize that, and now I just want to lie down on the floor, or watch <laughs> yeah, no, Heartstopper no, like, again. Yeah, a good, you know, a good Beetle curl is good for all of us at some point, you know. And, and, and so, this is like, I want to circle back. I want to indict myself a little bit here. Individual choices. I watched Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, decades ago, and I remember at the end of the movie, it's like, well, what can don't feel despair as an individual? There's things you can do as an individual. Change your light bulbs. We did that, right? All the incandescent bulbs out of the house and the whatever they're called bulbs in the house. But man, like there are certain ways I live that I'm going to have a hard time giving up and I feel complicit as an individual in climate collapse. You know, I have a, a boyfriend. He lives in Europe. I live half the year there. I don't fly back and forth once a month or every month, but like four times a year, I'm on... You know, Delta flying international. Do I, as an individual, need to pick a relationship and pick a continent? Can I keep doing this without you know Greta Thunberg hunting me down and slapping my face?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Greta will cut you.
0: I, I know, and she should, because I, I, I like I'm Catholic. I feel like I deserve it at this point. Yeah,
1: I mean, so here's here's what I would say to that is that I think. All of us need to look at our own lives and how we're living them and decide what is actually you know, core to our experience of the world. I would argue that being able to be physically together with the person you love is a pretty important value. But all of us do things that we could do better, right? We could make the switch to an EV or put solar on our roof or blah, 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 right? Eat less meat, fly less. But the real thing is that those decisions matter somewhat right what we really need are institutional decisions to change for two reasons first of all we can get too hung up on what we can or can't do and some of those things we can't do because those institutional incentives are aligned against us mm-hmm. right for a long time if you wanted to buy an electric vehicle it was hard it was expensive it was hard to find it was hard to you know etc cetera, like et cetera, right? like getting the permits to like you know, build a charger at your house were expensive and hard. Like, it was just a hard thing. So you could do that. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to change the entire automobile fleet, you just have to build up the, like, the momentum to ban internal combustion engines, starting with where you can do it and spreading out from there.
0: And then you have to sell that to the, like, they're coming to take my guns crowd. And we're never
1: going to convince them. So there are going to be places, you know, Wyoming, I suspect, maybe Alabama, That will, you know, after the entire world has moved forward and is continuing, you know, continuing to push on climate and ruggedization and so forth, they're still
0: going to be fighting. Some of the things you cite, like I I engage in those sort of like, you know, what I can do, what I can't do, what I can give up, what I can't give up, and on some level, it feels like rationalization. It's like I've never learned to drive, I've never owned a car. My husband owns a car. It's an electric vehicle now. We we live because we're very privileged and bought a house in Seattle twenty years ago. In a walkable neighborhood, we can go to the grocery store. There are weeks where we don't get in the car because uh, we can, you know, I can bike to the grocery store. I can walk there. And then I when I zoom out, I think about recycling, where the plastic manufacturers have managed to convince us that this, all of the pollution that they generate, it's our responsibility that if we see plastic bags in the ocean and the Pacific garbage patch, it's because we as individuals failed to sort our recycling Rather than upstream of us as consumers, these companies aren't allowed to create so much packaging and waste and use so many plastics that there's no amount of individual responsibility taking that can fix for that, that can control for that. And this is maybe me just talking myself back into inaction and despair. Like there's nothing that I as an individual or other people's individuals can do that these have to be on some level decisions, choices, that are imposed on us or imposed on fossil fuel companies, plastics companies?
1: Well, you know what we used to call decisions that we decide to impose on ourselves? We used to call that democracy, right? Like, You know, it's not wrong to make choices as a society. And where we can't make them for everybody, we need to make them in smaller chunks, right? So you do have states like Washington and California and New York and Colorado that are moving forward. And that's necessary. I think the really the important thing here is to understand that the vast majority of the work of saving the world, right, of, you know, meeting this planetary crisis is going to be done by people whose job it is to do it. Right. Those decisions are going to be made by people whose job it is to make those decisions, not by us at the grocery store or whatever. And if we really want to have impact, what we need to do is figure out what are our avenues towards pressuring the people with those decisions or, or or helping them? Right. And some of that's politics and activism. Some of it is a slightly less comfortable reality of like, uh, we need to be looking at things like, where's our money invested? Mm-hmm. Right. Are we subsidizing the destruction of the future? Like, maybe that's not an OK thing to do. And we should change that and let the people know, hey, here's why we're getting out of your fund, because we don't want to support fossil fuels or whatever. But also... Almost all of us, of the kind of folks who are listening to your podcast, almost everybody works in some kind of institution or company or university or whatever. And those institutions make decisions all the time that aren't just like about like, you know, are we buying one bad thing, but are about buying a hundred thousand things. And those are the decisions we need to shift and figure out who makes that decision. Who can you talk to? How can you break the silence on this? You know, there's a huge professional insurrection going on right now, for example, of lawyers and engineers and others, simply young people, almost all, almost wholly, but saying, we're not going to work for a company that is involved with fossil fuels, right? We're not going to work in an ad company that has that does ads for cars and fossil fuels. We're not going to like work at a law firm that represents these people. Those things are very impactful because people need talent. They need workers. There are mm-hmm. lots and lots of ways that we can put a little more skin in the game right, that we can say, not just here's what I'm doing at home on my own time, but here's what I'm doing in the world as a person who, you know, is doing work and interacting as a member of a community and a democracy. And I think we really need to push that understanding of this crisis forward, that it's not about what we do on the side, because this isn't an issue we can do a little bit about and do our part. This is the era we live in, and we need to push every institution we can to be realistic about what's happening now and to and to act in accordance with that.
0: And being realistic about what's happening right now requires big swings in, in the changes we're going to make, but required them 20 years ago. Another thing I hear from people, well, it's too late and we should just, you know, party while the ship sinks. Like the band's playing on, let's dance as the Titanic goes down. Yeah. And that seems to me a real conundrum for the climate change reality slash movement, is that if you communicate to people just how dire it is, that can induce the opposite of what you hope to induce, not action, but inaction. Yeah. And, and me getting on another plane to go see my boyfriend.
1: But, well, that's true. And I think like, you know, if this were easy, we would have done it by now. You know, it's not easy. But I think part of the challenge is that so much of this seems harder than it actually is or more insurmountable or full of despair than it needs to be, because we're still holding on to all of these expectations and assumptions and attitudes that came from a world that wasn't dealing with a planetary crisis, or at least didn't understand that it was. Mm -hmm. And there's something akin to the way in which our society is having this big conversation about who people are and how we see people more truly. And, And there's a lot of discomfort there of being like, oh, This is actually a society that worked differently than we told ourselves it did. And that's, you know, provoked reaction and, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's also creating obvious change. And people are changing important decisions about their lives and how they interact with each other and the kind of people they hire at work and the kind of voices they, you know, they raise up in conversation. That can happen, right? We can change our attitudes. We can change how we think about the world. And the way we we need to do that now is by being realistic about how big this crisis
0: is. One of the things I think is going on with the vice signalers, you know, people talk about virtue signaling, those people rolling coal, that's vice signaling, is that they read into the discussion about climate change, a value judgment, that the way you have lived is wrong, that you've done it wrong, that you're a a bad person. And then there's this impulse to say, you know what? I'll show you how bad a person I am. Fuck you for this judgment and shame. And maybe we reach the vice signalers by saying, you know, we've all been doing it wrong that this isn't, you know, something wrong about your lifestyle, something wrong that you did. And a lot of the choices that you think you made were imposed on you. Dependence on cars, on automobiles is a choice that was imposed on people that they were conned into believing was a choice that they were making about their own personal freedom. Um, and autonomy. And it wasn't, it was imposed on you. And if there's just a way to reach the vice signalers with a message that, you know what, you didn't do it wrong. You weren't doing anything wrong. And you know, that, that false consciousness concept that, that you've been conned and you have been harmed and you turning around and like doubling down on the con and the harm by committing to it. And I say, this is somebody, you know, I probably have generated more fossil fuels with the way I've lived on planes for 30 years and flown all over the place than and somebody rolling coal has, right? I recognize my quarter of an inch of sea level rise that has my name on it. And yet, I sometimes feel like the way we talk, and me too, the way we talk about device signalers is causing them to hold on to the shit that they're doing and not let it go.
1: You know, I got to say for one thing, it's just giving them too much energy, right? It's giving Mm -hmm. them too much authority. Like fundamentally our response to the planetary crisis is not a culture war, right? It's not something you can have different, totally valid perspectives on. And it's not something that's, that can be solved by attacking the people who don't agree with you in cultural and political debate. Right. Because they're not going to agree with us. They're not going to come along. We're not going to convince enough people in the middle to overwhelm them, you know, into agreement. We're not going to get an orderly transition driven by cultural front runners here. It's already not happened. And so what we have to do is understand that realism is our friend here being realistic about the magnitude of what's changed and realistic about how many opportunities we have to respond to those changes, and realistic about what we can and can't do to help people caught in the midst of those changes, which is a lot more than we're doing now, and being realistic about the kind of fight this is, right, and the way in which we're going to win where we can win, and then we're going to fight the overall fight. That's the only way it can happen right now.
0: You know, you were talking about people with skin in the game, and now people are really putting their bodies on the line. And I just, as an old act-upper, you know, laying in the streets, getting arrested, that changed the world. That changed the the, the course of the AIDS epidemic, uh, saved millions of lives all over the world. And I am personally really inspired. Uh, and it does seem to be more a UK thing, a Europe thing, the Extinction Rebellion protests I'm really personally inspired by them. And that is the only thing that I'm seeing out there that's giving me hope is that more and more people are acting up, taking to the streets, interfering in. Absolutely. You know, things going on as they've
1: they've gone on. There are wooden shoes (laughs) in the gears. Yes. I mean, like, yeah, you know, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that. We have to understand that there's a spectrum of pressure points here, and one of them is just outright societal disapproval. Most people do disapprove of destroying the future. Already, most people,
0: right? Well, yeah, but not all. There's a significant percentage of the population right now that's really committed to nihilism that really does want to watch it burn. No,
1: there is. And, and, and honestly, unfortunately, you know, there's a big chunk of that on the left, you know, sort of the belief that, oh, we're going to watch it burn and then the glorious revolution will rise up out of the ashes.
0: The Susan Sarandon's.
1: You know, you know, it's important, though, to, to remember that some of us have nothing that we can do other than, like, visibly, aggressively withhold our participation, which is what, like, when kids go on climate strike... That's part of why that's so powerful. What else can a teenager do other than say, I'm not going to participate in the system that's doing this, right? It's, it's incredible. It's beautiful. But we let ourselves off the hook, us like, especially like middle-aged people with some, you know, wealth and authority and whatever. When we think that what we can do is that mm-hmm. it's not enough to go get arrested at a protest once a year. It's not enough. If you're somebody who has like
0: professional training, if you have power, if you have power, what those teenagers getting arrested, the climate strike teenagers, they're using what power they have, which ain't much. It's just not participating and putting themselves out there. People have more power, have other levers they can push and and, and need to. Nobody gets out of here without answering a sex question uh, with me. And here's yours.
2: Hi, Dan. I recently started dating a new partner that I feel really good about. We have a lot of fun together, and we're very compatible. Um, We've had sex a handful of times, and it's been good. He's GGG, except maybe too much as it comes to my attention that he struggles a lot to reach orgasm during sex. He's had a lot of partners in the past and has made it very clear that it's not me. He doesn't come during sex most all the time and seems to have a lot of anxiety about pleasing his partners. He's really oriented towards pleasing and hardly thinks about himself. There isn't a lack of attraction or compatibility in the relationship, but the anxiety he experiences is clearly in the way of having a good time. When we've spoken about sex, he asks a lot of questions about what he can do for me. But when I've asked him the same questions, he's pretty ambivalent about what he really enjoys in bed outside of pleasing his partner. There doesn't seem to be a reluctance to communicate, but rather a very clear notion that he doesn't think about himself. Aside from the obvious, like, suggesting that he tries therapy for some help with anxiety, do you have any suggestions for what I can do to make him feel most comfortable and support him as a partner?
0: Okay, Alex Steppens, climate futurist. What should this woman do about her boyfriend?
1: Well, I mean, let's you know, set aside the obvious questions of like, is he a person who enjoys sex? Does he enjoy sex with women? Um, You know, does he enjoy sex with her? Right? I mean, these are obvious questions you'd want to ask. Or does, you know, does he enjoy sex the way they're doing it? Does he need something very different out of that experience to be, you know, aroused and and happy? And I think we take those obvious questions out, it really lands on like kind of insecurity.
0: Or, I mean, I would toss into that list of, of obvious questions you know, she only just started dating this guy. Is he on SSRIs? Is he taking antidepressants? Is there something that he hasn't shared with you yet uh, because it's a new relationship? And it may be that he, you know, is just like focusing on your pleasure right now because it, you know, people who are on SSRIs sometimes have a difficult time uh, getting aroused, sustaining arousal, can impact libido. And that may be something that you're going to learn about him as he comes becomes more comfortable with you. And then you can address it together.
1: Yes. I mean, I think basically, you know, it comes down to communication again, <laughs>
0: like so many things, it unfortunately. It does, right?
1: Right. You know, but like, you know, it may also be that he feels uncomfortable, like taking up space for his own pleasure. Do you know what I mean? Like he feels like, oh, if I start asking for what I need, maybe I won't be seen the same way or loved the same way or accepted the same way.
0: Yeah. That gets into people's heads. And, 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 I think it sometimes helps to hear that allowing someone to give you pleasure can give that person pleasure. So if you're just focused exclusively on giving that person pleasure and not allowing them to give you pleasure, paradoxically, you're denying them the pleasure of giving you pleasure. And maybe that's just what he needs to hear. Like he's laser focused on your pleasure because he doesn't want to be the kind of selfish guy who's just taking what feels good for him, taking his pleasure in a woman. And he's just focused on you. So he's not a shitty guy. But in a way, you know, bank shot, double reverse backflip, he's denying you the pleasure of pleasuring him.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, being too much a giver can be selfish, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Being too much a giver is to take. And to take from that person those moments when they can feel good about giving to you. All right, you're pretty good at getting sex advice, Alex, I gotta say.
1: (laughs) Well, I think I'll keep it to climate futurism mostly here. (laughs) But it's good talking to you.
0: It's good talking to you, too. Um, where can people find you
1: online? So my newsletter is called The Snap Forward. Uh, it's on Substack and at thesnapforward.com.
0: Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Well, everybody, thanks for listening to this installment of Sex and Politics. Please don't kill yourselves. And do let us know if there's someone you would like to hear me talk with on a future S&P. And if you like S&P and you like the Savage Lovecast, please let your followers on social media know. Thanks again.